You're listening to the James Fry Podcast, where the streets, the sometimes taboo, and most importantly, real people with real stories meet. Join James as he explores the edge of life. Here's James. Hey, everybody. It's so good to have you here with me for the very first episode of the James Fry Podcast. If you weren't already aware, I'm the editor over at transgression.com.au, where since its launch a little over six months ago, we've had the privilege of publishing some amazing pieces of journalism and other written contributions. Recently, I found myself thinking that it'd be great to get similar content out via a podcast format, getting to speak to real people, talking about real life, exploring, for lack of a better description, topics that sometimes fall on the edge of life. Anyways, like I said, it's great to have you along for the ride. Now to today's topic, ice. So the use of amphetamines is nothing new. Since it was first formulated by a German chemist back in the late 1800s, it has been found throughout almost every strata of society, from frontline military personnel seeking superhuman endurance, in cold and flu and weight loss medications, students popping pills to help them pull all-nighters before a big test, or up the nose of everyone from bikers to ravers in its powdered form. As a society, we've long been exposed to the problems associated with amphetamine abuse. But it's been the recent arrival of a far more potent version of amphetamines, a crystalline, easily smokable and injectable form, that's seen existing amphetamine-related problems skyrocket. The use of crystalline methylamphetamine, or as it's most commonly known by its street name, ICE, has reached unprecedented levels across the globe. Now, like you, I'm not so easily convinced when the usual talking heads, generally our politicians, start trying to stir shit over whatever drug happens to be flavour of the moment. Sure, all drugs can cause some pretty significant negative consequences, but like it or not, many also indulge in all sorts of drugs recreationally with little to no ill effect. Yet with ICE, I found myself paying more attention to these calls for action. The only other time I can recall such a demand on our attention has been with the heroin epidemics of the 1990s and, say, the 80s crack plague in the United States. Many of those who consider themselves just recreational drug users, popping the odd ecky or smoking the occasional joint here and there, had tried to take the same approach to ice and instead found themselves quickly swept away in the grips of a ferocious addiction. Not a publication renowned for its sensationalism, The New York Times even went so far as to label this current wave of ice use as an epidemic. Now, I've had my fair share of experience with drugs, but fortunately for me, when I was kicking around, ice was only available on the periphery of the scene. So that I could get a better understanding of what was actually going on out there, beyond the usual headlines and panic and hysteria, I sought out two people who I figured would have a much better idea than myself. So today I bring you the CEO of the iconic Knopfs Foundation, Matt Knopfs, and Sydney actor and former ice addict Timothy James Cooper. First up's Timothy. He's appeared in a range of popular Australian TV shows, but before getting into acting, he was into something else, ice. I grew up in Western Sydney. was there till I was 14. Got kicked out of school when I was 14. I was too young to not be at school, so they sent me to like a reform school, where I was with other kids who were supposed to be like me, which... Like, I guess I, that's where the acting comes in as well because I had to pretend I was one of those kids when I was no, like, tough kid. I was just, like, a mixed-up kid that didn't like to be told what to do. They're not bad people. I think they're just misunderstood, a lot of them. I mean, the real bad ones don't go at all, you know? So if you're there and you're going, there's some hope for you, so... And then I left there, started doing acid, did acid for, like, 
a year every weekend. Like there used to be this guy called uh, oh, Matty Lee or something. His name was, and um, he went to my old high school, and everyone knew him. But he used to sell acid. He used to sell trips, and that was like it was massive. Like ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. If you were out, if you were in St. Clair or Erskine Park, you were a teenager, you did acid pretty much. Like everyone was doing it. It was like cheap and there wasn't much else around, to be honest. So would you say you chose acid because just of the availability? Well, I don't think I chose it. I think we were just young kids doing young things, man, you know? And we were getting drunk all the time. One of your mates is like, oh, let's do some acid. It's like, all right. Yeah, all right. So you were drinking first, (laughs) were you? Yeah, I was always drinking. I was drinking from... uh, Probably, oh, fresh into high school, so year seven. Started sneaking my grandma's old stones, green ginger wine. <laughs> when that finished, then, you know, like, we would be stealing our parents' alcohol and, like, just at my, we'd be hanging at my grandma's house, like, um, playing video games, drinking, sneaking out. Yeah, right. That was in Warrington, just doing all whatever we wanted, really. I was 11, I had a bad head injury, and I'd, like... Um, was in hospital for months and had my jaw wide shut and had my face reconstructed. And I think a lot of, now I look back and I think a lot of my behaviour was probably trauma from that. I was um, on a push bike. I was going, we were going to see some girls in um, Claremont Meadows, which was about 40 minute bike ride from Kingswood, I'd say at that point, maybe a bit less. That's not a whole lot when you know there's girls waiting they're, at the other end, is it? Absolutely not, yeah. no. <laughs> Especially when they're hot chicks. I, think, I can't remember the chick's name, but she looked like, had the 80s side ponytail and everything. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. and she was a kisser too. So, oh, well. You know, when you're, in, when you're in primary school, if you get the girls that kiss, then like... You crawl, wouldn't you? Yeah, really? you yeah. go wherever you have to <laughs> yeah. go, man, you know, whatever. Boys or girls, whatever it is that you're into. And I, I was riding my mate's bike, which was a BMX, and it happens that it didn't have any brakes on it. And when I got to the bottom, it's all gravel. So when I got to the bottom, the bike flipped, spun and flung me off face first into a gutter. Ouch. And that was it. And then I was, my mate resuscitated me, flagged the car down. The car took me to the hospital and then I blacked out in and out for about two days. And I woke up and I couldn't open my mouth. So had you been using drugs or drinking before then? Nah, that was when I was 11. I was using whatever the hospital people were giving me, which was probably pretty good at that point. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I remember being constipated when I got home, so <laughs> that's probably must have been the gear. You found yourself out of school? So, like, at that point, I would do things just to, you know, because, like, the, the best attention I would get is negative attention. So if I did negative things, I would get that attention, which is what I was used to, you know? You hit high school? From day one, I was a problem for everybody, for the teachers. So you're still was... turning up at this stage most days? But, oh, yeah, but just. Up. Just for the laugh, kind of the social aspect with yeah. your mates. We used to have a bit of a joke where we jig roll call. Right. And um, that way, if we jigged anything else, wouldn't show up. We just, show up, right. But then we got caught because obviously when we're getting marked down for classes, they're like, why aren't they in roll call? Right. <laughs> it wasn't really well thought through. Um, so when started did you, smoking, yeah. Yeah, started smoking. Did yeah. you, like, what came first? Was it drinking or was it No, nah, smoking, started smoking, yeah. yeah. We say smoking just cigarettes at that stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never really smoked weed until, like, I was getting off meth, to be honest with you. Yeah, right. While I was on meth, I used to, we used to have a couple of drawers on a joint on the third or fourth day just to get a mad buzz. But right. 
other than that, I never was really into smoking weed. I didn't like downers that much, you know. Well, after acid, I blew my fucking mind so much that I kind of scared myself off drugs, man, and I never took them for ages. Like, I was just drinking and carrying on. Like, then I started getting the Ritalins. Remember the old Ritalins? That's you right, know? yeah. And then I started hearing voices when I was coming off those things, and I was like, I don't need this. So I stopped doing Ritalins, and that put me off speed. I started to hang around with my mates from St. Clair a lot more again. Right. And we started to, uh, well, actually, I didn't, wasn't involved in the crime side of it because I was, well, you know me, like I always kind of worked and stuff. I was never really, I never really broke the law. Yeah. And that's something I want to talk to you a bit about, I guess, just a little bit further down the track in that drugs, you know, tend to affect everyone a little bit differently. Mm. Um, You always tend to have this uncanny ability, no matter how hard you were going, to still front up for work most of the time and still, you know, pull in a legitimate wage. Yeah. Whereas for me or a lot of other people I know too, that was something I guess we all wanted to do, but we just, for whatever reason, the way it affected us, we just couldn't do it. I think it's the difference between an alcoholic and a functioning alcoholic, Mm. man. You know, like some people, like you see people up here at the cross and they're not functioning people. They're on drugs, but they're not. And then you'll just be like... There'll be housewives take driving their kids to school and they're smoking crystal, bro. Like yeah, and taking the same amount as that yeah, guy on the street. But they yeah. and and same as like I work with a lot of guys. Uh, like just the other day, I was at at work and I was talking to one of the guys and like I mean I can obviously relate to it because I was the same guy. But you, if you meet if you meet me today and I'm smoking ice, mm. and this is how you meet me, and I'm like not constantly, but I keep up like you know I'm what's the word when you continuously one way like you. Your, I guess, that baseline behaviour we know you as when we yeah, first meet yeah. you, it doesn't deviate. That's right, yeah. So, like, consistent. If I'm consistent, yeah. then you're just going to assume that's what I'm like. Yeah. You know? So you could be, like, working with someone and someone will say to you, that guy's on drugs. You'll be like, that's just the way he is. Yeah, you're just like, like no, that guy's like... actually on drugs. But, like, because you're functioning, man, you know, and you have these weird little meltdowns and you'll have, like, a couple of days off which will be random and, like, you'll get away with it because people will just believe you. They... They think that's who you are, you know, you're this person. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you, it's, it's just what's happening to you. I think that if, if you're a functioning drug addict, you're still a drug addict. But mm. at the same time, people are out there medicated for all sorts of things. And I guess you're self-medicating. And if it works, you're going to do it. And some people it works. And for me, for a long time, it worked. Yeah. Like, I, was, I felt like I was more efficient. I felt I had more confidence. I felt like... You know, I was better with people. I felt all those things, but it was like a delusion. It was like a lie. It was just what I'd convinced myself. You know, that's what I thought. You know, that's how I prolonged. That's how I kept doing the drugs is that I just convinced myself that without them, I wasn't able to function, you know? Yeah, and and from what I'm hearing from other people too who get involved with meth, that's kind of one of the hideous aspects of it and, Mm. and why it's so powerfully kind of addictive is because... Unlike if you go out and, and drink and hit the piss, you know you're drunk, you know, and, mm. and you know, at first you might think you're a bit of a better singer yeah, or a better dancer, right. but in the scheme of things, you know, hey, I was pissed, yeah, probably wasn't yeah. the best dancer, you feel like shit, yeah, you, yeah. you slur your uh-huh. words, you have trouble, you know, even just walking, yeah. whereas with, you know, amphetamines and in particular meth, at least for a, an initial while, it, it really seems to just enhance things rather than make you yeah, intoxicated, yeah. even though you are certainly like changed. You, you feel this burst of euphoria, you feel this burst of energy, you're not slurring your words. Yeah. In fact, you probably, at least you think you're probably holding conversations a lot better than you normally well, would. Well, I don't know, I think you are, man. I worked a long time on um, 
as a security guard, I won't say where and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, like, I worked for four years and I was, like, consistently, because, like, my dealer lived with me, like, I had I had drugs on tap for a long time, like, I had a lot of mates and stuff, I made a lot of friends that I, I like, you know, that I would never have known, uh, known for years sober. Those kinds of people that, not the people I did drugs with, but the people that I met on drugs, I mean, right. I had to, like, kind of re-meet them, like, you know, yeah, right. in a way when I'm, when I was straight, because, like, I was a different person. I mean, I don't know what they think about it, a lot of them probably don't know, but. And yeah, a lot of people still wouldn't know that. Maybe they did. I don't know. Yeah, right. What, what was it about <laughs> the the drug in particular that made you feel that? Like, what did it give you that put you in a position where you you were meeting these new people that you you wouldn't normally meet? What did it do? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. I guess it, I guess it just helped me function better. With drugs, I was able to do that and not think about it. I was able to work three jobs. I was able to earn a lot of money and then the drug became a way for me to, because I wasn't having any downtime, now my work was my downtime. Yeah, right. You know, I was able to kind of have all these kind of fun relationships with people yeah. and it didn't feel like I was at work. It just felt like I was out having a good time. You yeah. Know? And the jobs that I was doing, I was moving around a lot. I was talking to a lot of people. I was like, you know, I don't know if I should say what I was, but for a while I was the like the postman and stuff. I was a postie. Yeah, right. And I would be like, you know, taking all the old ladies' mail up to their door and they'd be feeding me lunch. I'd be doing everything. You know, like I'd take 20 minutes off in my day to run up and grab them some milk because they can't, you know, I'd do all sorts of stuff. I'd be talking to these people about their... What they, there was this lady that rescued dogs. I'd be at her house for like an hour just talking. Time just didn't mean anything. Yeah, you know? right. But the whole time I was doing that, I was on drugs. There was a book published recently called The Ice Age by Melbourne author Luke Williams who made a lot of comments that really resonated with what you seem to be saying. I feel great. It's like any drug, you know. You take it to, to numb yourself from life. And for me, that was crystal, man, and like... I loved it. Like, it was everything. I fucking... I loved the feeling it gave me. I loved smoking it. I loved... You know, like, I loved being around my mates. I loved the people I was around, you know. But it was all the... It was all... Like, drugs are a lie. It's like this, right? Say you play Grand Theft Auto, right? Right. You're playing it for a while. You're sick of it. You want to put the cheats in. You put the cheats in. Now, are you ever going to play that game without the cheats again? No. Fuck no. Yeah. That's what crystal... That's what drugs are, man. It's like, all right, I'm going to do life. It's like, I can't do life. It's hard. I'm going to put the cheats in because I still want to do life, but, you know, I don't want to do it hard. So you start doing drugs, and then before you know it, it's like, well, life's fucking really hard now, and I've had these drugs. If I just keep doing the drugs, I'm going to get through it a lot easier. Obviously, you can't play the game forever with the cheats. It's not as exciting as it first was, and now it's just this thing, you know? So you can either pull back and find a way to get yourself back to being on track... Or you end up on the street going through garden beds looking for whatever the hell you're looking for for six hours or living on the street and whatever, you know, like, you know, hanging out in cruise lounges, you know, having sex with 500 people a night while you're on grinder or yeah, whatever right. you do. You either continue your life like that or you stop and be like, what the fuck is happening to me? And I think that, yeah, that's a hard thing to do, man. And um, some people can do it on their own. Some people can do it with uh, rehab. Some people can't do it at all. Mm. You know, everybody does it their own way. And some people you probably would never even know they had a drug problem or whatever. But I think it's hard to come back from cheating, <laughs> you know. What Luke wrote in his book, when you said it's kind of like entering the cheat codes, Yeah, he spoke about feeling as if he'd kind of been given a little bit of an advantage or a secret to how to live life that other people who weren't using ice 
didn't have. Mm. So, you know, everyone was trying to go about, you know, living their daily life. And when he was smoking meth, he kind of felt superhuman. Like he, yeah, he, dude. Like he was let in on something that was giving him the ability to perform as a human in a way that the rest of us couldn't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you kind of think like... Even the way, if you look at the guys and the girls up around that, that you can tell because they've always got a look in their eyes. And sometimes it's like you feel like they're looking at, looking like they know something you don't. You yeah, know? right. And it's a bit like that. You feel like you know something that they don't. It's like you feel like you haven't tapped into it yet, obviously. It's like it's like Limitless. You seen the movie Limitless? I haven't, no. Well, Limitless is like, would be the perfect drug, right? Because. There is no come down. You just got to keep taking it. Yeah, right. Crystal meth is kind of like that, except you got psychosis. So without psychosis, I would say that crystal meth is the limitless drug. It's a wonder drug, really. Yeah. yeah. So in the real world, but like obviously you have psychosis with meth, so that's when it shit gets weird. You can function as superhuman, but as soon as psychosis kicks in, you fucked. And the problem with psychosis too is you don't actually notice when it kicks in. Usually, no, it's... you don't. Well, you realise six hours later when you like you know got cuts all over your hands and like you you know sitting in the corner of a room with a razor blade trying to change the colour of your phone cover. Yeah. That's um, that's pretty hectic. <laughs> but do you remember the first time you made a decision to use ice? Yeah, like so. What happened was I had a mate already doing ice. We were doing a lot of speed. Guy so, that we were getting speed off was also a meth dealer and he was living in uh, service departments which got raided as we were sitting out the front waiting. So couldn't get speed. Right. My mate had been like, come over, have some of this stuff. You know, it's better than speed. I'd heard about it from my other mate and I didn't like the sound of it. But that night I was like, fuck it, let's just go, right? Went around there, had two of the tiniest lines, like a centimetre long by about a millimetre, like nothing, bro. So what, what year would have this been roughly? Uh, 2003. Okay, so... About 23, 24. So yeah, 2004, I'd say, because... Like ice had been around in terms of the drug, but at least my experience was that, you know, been around on the periphery, been mainly a drug used by people, like from Southeast Asia. It was not, They'd used it in the street, yeah, and yeah. shabs, things like that, or shabu. yeah. It probably was only around that time, you were saying in 2003, 2004, maybe a little bit earlier, that it started kind of entering mainstream kind of, you yeah. know, white kids in the western suburbs. Yeah, yeah. At that time, had you kind of known that it was quite addictive? Well, at raves and stuff, it had a bad rap. So what happens is people are taking, same thing happened to me, people are taking it at raves, right? Right. And then they're disappearing from the raves because who the fuck wants to go to a rave? Let's have a rave at my house. Yeah, right. I've been awake since Tuesday anyway. Like, yeah, what the fuck am I going to spend my money on a rave ticket? I've been doing this all week. Yeah, right. So people just disappear from the rave scene and then all the hardcore ravers or whatever, the people that still go to the parties, like the scene people, they're losing their friends and then you just hear a bad rap about it, you know? Right. Oh, yeah, well, I knew it was bad. You I knew it was, yeah. That's why I didn't take it for ages. Right. And even my mate, he told me about it and how much he liked it and I was like, oh, I really, don't really want to get into it. Right. But then my girlfriend at the time was pushing for it and then eventually yeah so we started snorting and we had the tiniest little fucking lines of this stuff and we're awake for like days and i'm right. like this is the ne- this is the new thing i'm a part of the new thing <laughs> and speed been, is gone you've been using Over. speed up until then and, and when i say speed yeah i know we're, we're talking the slang name for again it's amphetamines it's, it's not in that crystalline form yeah. it's pretty strong but, but yeah not even in the ballpark compared to no to you ice. can never go back man you can once you once you have like ice you, you can't go back to speed. You, you, why would you? You don't really realise how powerful it is until you stop. You stop doing it for a week or so, and then you take it again, and that's when it hits you. Yeah, right. You've you got know, that difference between not yeah. using it and using so it. So it took me a little while to kind of realise what was happening. Like I was high as fuck, but I wasn't really sure. 
you know, it wasn't like speed. I wasn't getting this buzz. Of, but like I was, it was just really like this super buzz that I kind of wasn't aware of. And then from there, I snorted it for a while. And then someone had a pipe and chucked it in the pipe and had a go at that. And then from there, just like that was it. Did you notice a big difference between snorting it up your nose and when you smoked it for the first time? Was yeah, it-, it took, a, again, it took a little bit to kind of, gauge it but yeah i mean like smoking anything is um becomes a habit like you know it's like say junkies i never shut up or anything but i used to like when i used to live with these junkies they used to say they were just as addicted to the needle as they were were the drug right the the actual ritual around using it the the kind of it almost becomes like a ritual in terms of you know usually certain people in your tribe certain instruments some of the excitement of knowing I was going to get high yeah. was almost as euphoric as getting high itself. Yeah, anticipation. Yeah, so it's a social thing. Like, So you obviously only surround yourself with people doing the same thing as you because like, other people don't really accept you because you're fucking doing hard drugs. Yeah, and is this even amongst people, say, you know, you were going to raves before and there were yeah. people using drugs at the raves. Yeah. Did you even then find you were kind of pushed away or isolated oh, yeah, from fucking oath, yeah. the users of drugs other than ice? Yeah, it's like when you go to a party, if you and your mate are real loud and you carry on, you clear rooms, you know? Right. If you sit there and you're at a party where people are drinking and, you know, maybe having a bit of coke or something, then you're sitting there smoking a crack pipe, then you're going to clear a room. You know, like I remember once we went to my mate's house and they were uni students and he smoked, but like his roommates didn't. And we're sitting there and we pull the pipe out and we start smoking. And my other mate, who come with me, just like projectile spews all over their floor you right know? just after having a toke and it's like at that point it's like okay so that's why no one wants to be around yeah because like we're just junkies man like could you see that at the time yeah i guess i mean i never considered myself a junkie but i was and you don't see it as something that you're doing to relieve the issues that you're dealing with you think that you're just having fun but then later on you realize everything that you do is is having fun but it's it's all at some level because of some deeper issues you know so people were kind of distancing themselves from yourself and and the other mates you were using with yeah what did you think of those people like just say people you're going out partying with before it raves uh, and yeah. all of a sudden you're kind of you know you're really involved with ice you, you hang around same people doing ice did you think of these people as quite boring or like the people who weren't yeah. using or did you have an opinion? Of- well, if you don't do crystal, I don't want to know you because yeah. there's nothing I can get from you. Yeah. And, and you don't like me anyway. So. Yeah. So why would you, well, they're not going to want to be around you because they, because you're doing this drug and like, yeah. And they assume that, you know, people who do ice are just going to go out and like start busting up the street and like, you know, holding people hostage in houses. And it's like, not everybody that does. I mean, like, if you're already a crazy, violent person, when you add any drug to that, it's going to heighten that. It's adding fuel to the fire. Yeah. Kind so of if thing. you're yeah. if you're just like a, a a person that likes to have fun, you you're not violent. Then you're just going to heighten whatever it is there. I mean, I mean, if you smoke enough or if you do enough of anything, you're going to lose the plot. But yeah, you do separate. You set, you definitely isolate yourself from pretty much everybody. I'm curious, like going back again to when you started using it. Like, when did you notice it was it was becoming more than just something you're doing for fun? When did you notice actually I'm having trouble not having it? Okay, so it was a good few years that we were just doing it every weekend, and then becoming every second weekend, once a month, and then right. we we're trying not to do it all. And then I met a new guy and we started getting off him and he was homeless. So I let him move into my house. Right. So he was dealing. Yeah. And he was, yeah. Right. And and good, the best gear, the best gear right. on the street, like the clearest, like best smoking crystals out there. Moved him into my shed at my house. I had a huge house in Croydon and it had two sheds and one of them was big enough to live in. And I said, all right, man, come obviously because not because I liked him in any way, just because he had what I wanted. Yeah. And from that point on for about 
two years, maybe more. Even when he moved out, I was using every day for that. Like there'd be micro sleeps, there'd be days I'd sleep, there'd maybe two days I'd sleep. But like whenever I wake up in the morning, I'd def- it's like a cigarette and a coffee. I'd just pick up the pipe and smoke it and it was on tap. Yeah, there right. might have been a couple of days here or there where we couldn't get it. But like other than that, it was just he had a good supplier, I had a good supplier and yep. that's all I did for a long time. And that, that was like a very quick time. It just went. Did you find yourself thinking during that time that, hey, something seriously has gone wrong here? Like things have shifted? Yeah, but like, what are you going to do? You're hooked on drugs. You're not going to be like, oh, I'm losing it, man. It's like, I'm not going to go out to the shed and get more drugs anymore. Guys pay me rent in meth. I'm going to fucking smoke the meth. A lot of the times you're holding down a job. I was the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think often that, you know, you can fund your own use or or whatever it may be and you're still functioning in some aspect, but often I think that can be a real barrier for some people to actually get help or or know Mm. that there may be a problem because... You know, if you're holding down a job yeah. and on your way to your job, you're walking past someone, you know, that stereotypical junkie was saying, you know, passed out in the street or ranting and raving, taking their clothes off. Mm. It's so easy to go, well, hey, they're the ones with the problem. Yeah, not me. You know, I've got my shit together. Yeah, you know what? It'd yeah. probably be better if I have a bit of a break for a while, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a fucking... Junkie. Yeah, I'm not a junkie. Yeah, I'm, I hold down two jobs. I've got a house and like pretty much a wife. I'm bringing up my kid. Like I'm doing all the right things, you know. Yes, there is a deal of living in my shed, but (laughs) hey, no one's perfect. Yeah, no one's perfect. (laughs) Say someone's listening here and they've never done drugs before. This sounds like a huge deal. It sounds like, well, this isn't something just to lightly talk about like that. That's hardcore. But when you're living in it, it's just normal. It's like you going down the street and getting a getting like, you know, a bottle of soft drink and coming home watching a movie. It's like, that's not weird. It's like for me... Having a drug dealer living in my shed and smoking crystal meth all day and all night for days and days and days and doing whatever, when you're living in that, it's normal. And like you're saying. It's fucking normal, man. And if, if those other influences, like, you know, who are perhaps living a more, uh, you know, what society would deem a normal life have, have kind of pushed you away and you've pushed them away. Yeah, that's and, yeah. And you've got, like, only four or five mates and they're living exactly the way you are. Mm. It, it does become normal, doesn't it? Yeah, and it? then you, you kind of fund each other and function each other. But, like... But there's no honour, bro. There's yeah. no honour. Leaving behind in a second uh, becomes this thing where it's like it's only what benefits you, you know? It's like dog eat dog. Was there a particular moment or, or moments maybe found yourself acting in a way that you normally wouldn't have? Or, you know, they talk about an addiction like rock bottoms. Yeah. You know, and, and often people I hear say, oh, you know, there must have been a rock bottom. But also, you know, I know from my own experience, there's often plenty of rock bottoms. There's, there's not one. Loads. usually bounce along yeah. the bottom. Was there any one or two things that maybe stood out for you in particular that you found yourself doing things you could have never have imagined? Actually, that was probably most of my life until I got clean. And yeah, when right. you, I got clean, I managed to actually get to know who the fuck I really was. At 12, 13, I started drinking. And from that point on, that's all I've ever been is somebody that just gets drunk, gets high, does this, does that. Yeah. But then when I stop and took the time to reinvent myself and get to know who I am and became the person that I am naturally, then like that's a completely different person. So everything I did was rock bottom and everything I did was out of character for me because it's, who who mm. it's not who anybody is. Yeah. There's plenty of times where I'd be like, you know, just like collapsing in a bar and then like throwing myself in a cab and going to my drug dealer's house and then just like waking up three hours later with like a pipe in my hand and like... Oh, I don't know, like, you know, masturbating for six hours mm. because my girlfriend hadn't slept with me for fucking six years, you know? Yeah. Plenty of things, man. Jesus, I don't know, causing problems at work so I wouldn't have to go. Yeah, like, giving up meth, but then, you know, kind of like just pretending like I can use other cooler drugs and like, you know, as a, as a crutch. It's... Having my drug dealer live in my shed. <laughs> yeah. You know, like letting, letting random people come to my house and just like 
to do weird drug deals and shit like that just because, like, you know, you didn't want to offend anybody who was going to give you free drugs. Yeah. Crying, you know, having, like, these hysterical breakdowns over nothing. But actually, you know what rock bottom is? Rock bottom is um, not being myself and missing out on being who I am now throughout my daughter's whole life. Yeah, right. That's probably the biggest rock bottom you can hit is Mm. realising that, like, I've given away how I am now and I've, like, wasted that. I could have been so much better. I could have been doing so much more. I could have been so much more involved, but I wasn't. That's rock bottom. The Mm. whole experience is rock bottom. Even though your family and friends, you know, you loved them. With ice, that's kind of becomes a primary lover. Yeah. You know, it always kind of just takes precedence. It does, yeah. It's more important than anything in your life, man. And I think that's what sometimes, you know, people who haven't had addiction issues don't understand is, you know, you often hear them say things like, well, if they loved me, they wouldn't do that. But the first thing that comes to my mind is that, well, they do love you, but they've yeah. also got a relationship going with this drug and it's a really powerful drug. Yeah. And this is a really powerful lover. Yeah. And unfortunately what happens is that'll take precedence. Yeah. Another thing that jumped out at me recently was with meth was Harriet Rand. Here she was daughter of a New South Wales premier. Had all the kind of things at her, I guess, her, her feet that we would think would equate with success you know there was yeah financial support great education at least from what we can tell uh you know family that loved her yeah and she went from kind of being this a-list socialite to hanging out in liverpool in housing commission apartments and eventually uh although she's been acquitted now of the actual murder she was uh, certainly uh convicted of being someone who helped facilitate what ended up being a botched robbery of an ice dealer in a, in a yeah, Civic housing commission flat and it doesn't that doesn't seem like a big deal until you get caught too yes yeah. it's just that's day-to-day life and i mean like you'll find a lot of the people i would have hung around with in the years are rich kids bro Yep. They're rich kids, like, they've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of money to buy drugs, and with those drugs, they've got a lot of money to buy friends, man. They're the ones the dealers are friends with. Yeah, Because right. if you're a drug dealer, you're in it for the money. Yep. And if someone's got a lot of money, and they're going to drive you around town, and they're going to dote over you, and they're going to throw money at you, and you can charge them whatever you want, they're going to be hanging around with those people. They're yeah, They're right. hanging around with kids from private schools. They're going to be from the North Shores. The dealers themselves, you know, on, on the ground level, mm. there's often this misconception that the, that street-level dealers making a lot of money yeah. and, and, you know, is quite wealthy. Um, but often I think that wealth exists, you know, at the top of the food chain, like you were saying. Like any have, job, bro. Yeah, that have very little to do with the actual day-to-day operations. Yeah. person living in your shed, for example, like what, what was life like for them in terms of what, what would their day consist of? And, and Isolated. He'd never go anywhere. He'd be sitting there trying to purify his gear as much as he could. He'd sit in the shed. He'd go out when he'd want to buy more or when he'd have some kind of deal, but most people came to him. He never really left and he saved all his money. But then... You'll get other guys that want to be out on the street and they'll be like, they'll spend it as quick as they make it and um, they'll use. So the, the, my friend managed to make a lot of money and the reason he was dealing, most dealers, the reason they deal is because they want to support their habit. And right. if they're good at what they do, they will. They're, they're all homeless or they end up homeless. And if they don't, they end up in jail because they want to be too gangstery, you know? Right. And they're real people, people that think they're fucking Scarface are out there. And they're the, they're the ones that you've got to watch out for. There's an ego associated with yeah, that? Yeah, or... and they'll deal to hookers. And they, like, my dealer wouldn't deal to anybody that didn't have money. If you, right. If you, he'll be dealing to tradesmen, people that work for the council. He'd be dealing to, uh, I won't say names, but like a very, very high profile car dealership. Right. He would be dealing to his son for years, man. Yeah, right. Like, 
he would be dealing with people like nobody would come around and like be screaming and like you know fighting or anything like that like all these people have money they come from good backgrounds and they would bring money to him and get what they wanted and like he had no dramas he never got yeah. robbed he never got nothing but then there's people out there that'll deal to hookers they'll deal to junkies they're the, like these wannabe gangster type ones that end up in jail because they just have this whirlwind of shit around them. You know? Yeah, right. So there's smart ones and there's not... just like anything, like any business. What do you think about the war on drugs? Do you think we can arrest our way out of nah, drug use? People, especially in Sydney, Sydney's a pretty free place where there's every drug you want and you can get it from anywhere and anybody's pretty much able to get it for you. People in houses in the suburbs, like it's just footy players, like sports people, anybody, business people at any level. Drugs are pretty free here, like, and I think that they should be legalised and regulated. And I think that you could reduce the amount of ODs, psychosis, by regulating the strength of drugs and making it, like alcohol, a usable substance. People are going to do what they want to do, man. Like, I don't know what everyone's so scared of. If you don't like something, that's fine. But when you're a young person, you want to party, you should be able to party without destroying your whole fucking life, either by getting addicted to something that's way too strong and you're buying from the wrong people, or by ruining your life with criminal records and all that shit. You know, yeah. normal people being put in jail and stuff. It's like, that's not okay. A big shout out to Timothy James Cooper. Thanks, Timothy, for giving me your time and being so honest with us. Next up is Matt Knopf's. Now, as you'll hear, I try to keep our conversation focused just on ice use. Perhaps not so surprising given that, hey, this was the topic of today's episode and maybe the reason you downloaded it. But like you'll hear, Matt challenged me. In fact, more like hijacked the direction I was hoping to head so that we'd think beyond the actual specifics of the drugs themselves and rather more broadly as to how we as a community, a society, could position ourselves to respond to challenges posed from serious drug use, regardless of whatever specific drug may have been causing it at the time. Oh, and finally, Matt makes reference to someone called Alex Wodak a fair bit. Now, just to avoid confusion for those of you who may not be aware of who Alex is, Alex is a Sydney doctor who has been head of the Drug and Alcohol Service section at St Vincent's Hospital since 1982. He's also the current president of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation. Like Matt, Alex is recognised as being one of the most informed voices out there when it comes to calling for a dramatic change in how we treat drug problems. The James Fry Podcast is a transgression production. So, after you enjoy today's episode, be sure to check out transgression.com.au. Not only does it contain links relevant to today's episode, but it's also packed with free content from acclaimed journalists and a whole bunch of other talented contributors. Unbiased, unadulterated, uncensored. Transgression.com.au. Now, back to James. Matt is the current CEO of the Knoffs Foundation, a legacy built upon the work of his grandparents, Reverend Ted Knoffs, and his wife, Margaret, in the 1970s. The Knoffs Foundation is a leading organisation when it comes to the provision of drug and alcohol services to young people in Australia. Along with his partner, Naomi, he established and is currently running an early intervention service known as Street University. 
Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Matt. Pleasure, James. Thanks for having me. And you might have also recognised that intro. I stole it from your book. So. Oh, no, I didn't. I was thinking to myself, that's a, that's a really good intro. I should use that. Yeah. So I know your experience in the, the sector and to do with drugs and alcohol is, is vast and varied. But the topic of my podcast today, I guess, is the use of ice. And not only that, but I guess the, the, the major attention that is being paid to not only ice, but the issues that surround it at the moment. One of the reasons I chose to focus, I guess, on ice was because, unlike a lot of other drugs that do get attention from law enforcement and the usual voices in politics, I noticed a lot of people speaking out against it who were actually users themselves or perhaps recreational users of other drugs successfully and had found themselves swept away. And even a few dealers speaking out about how rampant things were. Maybe help if you explain to the listeners what your experience with ICE has been, what you've seen come through your doors and how that differs to, say, other drugs that are being used at the moment. Yeah, well, I think from my perspective, there's no doubt that um, ICE has been uh, a problematic. Um, but I think it, it, the, the question that I've uh, been asking myself um, since we've seen more and more young people come into our treatment centres using ICE is, are we conflating uh, issues with ICE with um, issues around how we perceive violence in the community? Um, in other words, when we talk about the problem of ice in hospitals and then uh, and how the media presents that and then when you go and interview some of these emergency doctors, how much of it is actually uh, connected with ice? When you speak to them, they say it's actually really difficult to work out um, what's, um, you know, a, an ice-induced uh, uh, psychosis, a meth psychosis right. and, and what's someone coming in with other mental health issues. And uh, when the when a, a headline says something like a ice zombie chews her own toes off, Oof. apart from the ethical and mm. concerns around that, you know, because it really is entertaining for mm. a lot of people, and that's a hard uh, fact to mm. face. I realise there's a lot of unpacking to do with right. this, so it's easy to for all of us to jump up and say, "God, there, yeah, this is out of control," and all the rest of it. So I was like, well, how do we measure if something's out of control? Right. In other words, is it an epidemic? Mm. Um, uh, is, is it out of control? Um, should we be cracking down and all the rest of it? And that, that's when I kind of decided to stop and, and look at the evidence. And when I looked at that, I realized actually it wasn't the situation that, that everyone was thinking it was. And that's when I decided to write the book to kind of unpack uh, and untangle all of those mixed messages that we were hearing. Yeah. So I've, I've started to read your book, but I guess for people who haven't read the book yet, when you say that, you know, these, these calls of an epidemic, what do you think that is initially? Um, what, why do you think media and politicians have created such a, I guess, a fanfare around ICE in particular compared to, um, say, other drugs that are being used and abused in the community? Well, I, I think politicians generally like to have something that they can uh, rail against because if there's a war going on, um, if there's um, uh, an issue like Brexit occurring, um, if it's Vietnam, uh, if it's Iraq, uh, if there's a heroin crisis, if there are issues with bikies, when you have issues like this, which are genuine concerns in the community and things we should be concerned about... Oh, true. 
and we need to deal with them. Um, politicians focus on them because as a way, traditionally, going back to the beginning of politics, this right. is how you encourage um, people to listen to you as an answer to um, all of the worries in the world. So it's not just ice. It was the same for heroin. It was the same for cannabis back in the day of uh, reefer madness. Sure. And, yeah. and these, yeah. and these old, old um, you know, movies, which were essentially in some way propaganda. So governments do this any, anyway. But one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea that governments, and there are some who do this, who inspire us by showing us that we don't have to fear in mm. showing us ways in which we can work out and get past these challenges, those governments tend to stay in government in power, I should say, longer than governments that inspire fear and say we should be worried about this. So to answer your question, governments do it because they're, they're always looking for the other right. to blame. They're always looking for a scapegoat to blame. The smarter governments are the ones who say, no, actually, we're going to work our way through this. And, um, and you can see that they win people over by um, thinking about things more creatively, entrepreneurially. You know, and I think that uh, that's how we should be thinking about not just ice, but all, all drugs. You can cut that out. Yeah, we'll keep it in. You can, you can, you can, um, you can cut out. Uh, you can beep entrepreneurially, and you can have me <laughs> saying, you can have me saying this over over the top of it, in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah. I'll, I'll source a nice uh, voiceover yeah, actor yeah. in an entrepreneurial <laughs> way. Yeah, I think what you were saying about having politicians that actually are leaders and work to cut through fears that may be out there. Uh, what I think most of us expect a leader should do, uh, whether or not they actually do it. And it's something that I find quite appealing in leadership. And from what you're saying, it's something that actually the broader community generally would too by keeping those kind of people in power. And in my experience, I find it quite frustrating when you see someone, and unfortunately it's happened on both sides of politics, the politicians themselves may actually be quite educated people and, and quite aware of the fact that you know, there are evidence-based approaches to treating drug issues, but they choose to go down that populist path of demonising the other, like you said, to kind of shore support on their end, you know, presenting a problem in the community and then presenting themselves as the solution. How do you think we go about doing that? I mean, is it holding individual politicians to account? Is it educating a broader community so they can make an informed choice in the face of this fear? Or... It's something I think about and then I just, I guess I personally think, oh, it's just too hard. I don't know what to do. Look, there are a lot of people out there in the community, uh, in the field, in the drug field and in politics who um, are willing to work together, um, are willing to look at the evidence and uh, come up with solutions. Unfortunately, they are also the people with uh, smaller egos Right. And uh, because they are willing to understand different opinions than their own, they're less ignorant than people who believe uh, that they are right no matter what. Uh, and I was in Canberra last week in Parliament House when I faced um, not a politician but a, a politician's uh, 
kind of right-hand person. And this was this kind of same kind of ignorant um, response that is actually quite rare, funnily enough. Right. In, in, um, but when you meet someone like this, it doesn't matter what you uh, show them in terms of evidence. In the same way that Brian Cox uh, on Q&A recently showed a, a person, a climate change denier. That's right, the One Nation senator. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. You, you know, remember, Brian Cox picked up... It's Brian, isn't it, Brian Cox? Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe so, yeah. Brian picked up a piece of paper which showed the evidence and, and everyone kind of laughed because he... You know, he was showing the evidence there and the guy was still denying it. Right. So when you're doing that, when you're showing scientific proof of something and you still have someone denying it and just wanting to talk about what their beliefs are, it's very difficult to win. And so therefore, uh, it is about a um, growing your own coalition right. and growing a, a deeper response to the overall attack on these ideas. My feeling is, is that the coalition of people who care about these issues has to grow stronger and be more responsive in being able to deal with this kind of ignorance um, that we're seeing at at a political level. Now, I have to say that I've actually found a lot of support in the conservative corners of government. There are a lot of credible, sensible conservative politicians who understand these issues right. and who are very much willing uh, to listen. So it's not just the left mm. and the middle ground who understand this and want to do something about it. You also have a lot of conservative politicians. Right. Um, in fact, I've seen people on the far left um, who have been just as ignorant mm. and just as belief driven. So I don't actually think it's got a lot to do with the left and right of politics. Right. So much so it's got, uh, so much as uh, it's got more to do with uh, people who are essentially driven only by their beliefs and are not ready or willing to understand the evidence at hand. Right. And do you think that is born through a, a fear? What I'm trying to get at, I guess, is it's easier to live in a world that is quite black and white where there is this other out there where we can kind of focus our problems on and actually not realise that life actually is a little bit more complex and that person who may be, you know, addicted to drug use, may even be involved in in selling drugs, isn't kind of the devil incarnate walking Mm. on earth. He's actually a person who's actually quite complex who may require a little bit more care than the rest of us Mm. um, and, and requires us to, in turn, requires a response that isn't black and white. It, it requires um, you know, us to, to put a bit of effort into thinking about things and, and thinking about what an approach we've practised for a very long time in the war of drugs and challenging that and thinking, right, actually, this isn't working, what can we do different? And kind of letting go of some of that past baggage we've been carrying around. I think if I look at my own journey, um, so I came from a place... Uh, I, I grew up in the harm reduction movement. Right. So my parents were very much advocates of, of harm reduction, but they, you know, my family started Life Education Centre. Right. Okay. Which today is more aligned with um, Say No to Drugs and uh, drug, a Drug-Free Australia, which is sad. We also started, you know, Department of Aboriginal Affairs with Charlie Perkins. Right. Wow. Lifeline. Wow. Wayside wow. Chapel. Yeah. And uh, my parents started the first... Um, uh, adolescent rehab in the country and Naomi and I started the street universities and the mm. team uh, with all of us today Mark, Ferry, Kieran Palmer 
Michael Chan and Tony Carmody, all of us have, uh, and all of the staff that we work with, um, have been developing these ideas. But if you look at an idea like Life Education Centre, my parents walked away from that because it just wasn't working. And before walking away, they tried to convince the government that it wasn't working, right. that they needed to change. But everyone had been sold on this idea. That was a mistake. And um, Sorry, and, and when you say it wasn't working, what, what aspect was it that was kind of well, jumping out to your parents? The, the, there were two aspects of what my grandfather was trying to achieve with Life Education Centre and the Happy Harold thing. The aim was to see if you could prevent drug use by instilling a deep sense of self when a child is younger than 10. Right. So prior to ever being physically exposed to the drugs themselves. So by the, you know, so learning, learning messages like, you know, drugs are, drugs are bad and, um, you know, this is why, and this is the harm it does. And, 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 and not only that, this is the part that's, I, I find missing today is this is why you're so important you know you could do you could become anything and go on to do uh, incredible things in your life now we read just last week in the paper happy harold's telling kids not to take ice it doesn't work Mm. right Mm. so it was a beautiful idea it doesn't work yeah and this is what my dad discovered some you know seven years after venturing into it was it just wasn't working and it was a huge amount of money millions of dollars have been spent on this Mm. so so Dad really tried to slow it down, but everyone was interested in ramping it up. Right. So he left and said he went to work with starting a new organization. He worked with the National Drug and Alcohol Research Center, and they did, they worked on research which showed what was needed in the field, and more than anything else, it was rehabilitation and treatment, evidence-based treatment for adolescents there was nothing there so when an an adolescent like you or me Mm. got caught up in drugs when they were teenagers there wasn't anywhere for them to go except Mm. adult services right which were generally completely inappropriate places totally inappropriate so that's what they started one of the things we've got to look at when we're doing anything is looking at the evidence right so my point about this whole story was my journey was I grew up with parents who had left drug-free Australia, the drug-free Australia idea to harm reduction based on the evidence. I grew up in harm reduction, but I could only get as far as decriminalisation in my mind. The idea of regulating drugs was a step too far. Yeah, right. And it was spending time with Alex Wodak that, that he encouraged me to look at the evidence and I changed my view and my opinions. Yeah. And, and this is my point is that you cannot be driven by belief only. You mm. have to look at the evidence. And when Alex showed me that, then my view started to change and I, I went back, I revisited all of those things and then I started encouraging others to do the same. Right. So my point is, is fundamentalists of any belief, mm-hmm. of any religion, of any persuasion have more in common with each other than those who are ready to look at what the evidence is and change their mind. Right. I believe it was Clint Eastwood actually, to quote all people who, who had this great quote, and he said, if you go too far to the left or too far to the right, eventually you meet the same idiots. That's right. That seems very much what you're saying, you know, regardless Absolutely. of the evidence and the real world experience of yeah. what is actually going on in the ground, some people seem so set on holding on to this abstract ideological belief, yeah. which, you know, is people are entitled to do, but when it comes to the allocation of public funds, when yeah. it comes to the fact that there's sick young kids out there who could really use 
the hand, um, you know, for me anyway, and it sounds like for you too, you know, that doesn't wash. I guess I'm curious again, uh, you know, to ask you how, how do we, how do you go about selling that? How do you go about selling facts and experience to the decision makers, to, to donors, to people like, uh, you know, the other week you were out at Liverpool um, putting your case forward for yeah. a, a nice smoking room. Mm. <laughs> yeah, not a name that I. Uh, Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's what the media calls. Yeah, or or a safe a, room. A safe room. Yeah. If it's, uh, I guess yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong. Somewhere where someone can go and use drugs, which they're probably already using in the area anyway, mm. but at least under medical supervision, where there may be a point where they can ask for uh, help if if needed. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, this is where the story of evidence leads us is that um, when we look at things that could work, we are often led to ideas that you know a lot of people might find difficult to swallow, like the safe rooms. Um, and yet when you look at the work of the medically supervised injecting center in King's Cross right. and you look at what that inspired around the world in countries like Germany and the Netherlands, you see... Um, reductions in drug use, reductions in crime, increase in public amenity and uh, lives saved. Uh, and that evidence is hard to ignore. Mm. There's over 134 papers on the efficacy of these rooms. And I'm thinking too, sorry just That's to right. interrupt there, but one thing that, that also seems to improve is, is uh, in terms of economical investment too. So even if you're completely against you know, investing in these ideas because of a reduction of harm to the mm. people involved, you're of the opinion, well, if you use drugs, it's your fault what happens to you. Financially, there's a big saving too in terms of these evidence-based approaches. Absolutely. When you're, if you're only only interested in the money, this is still the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. We save lives, we save money, we become a wealthy. And we, the reason why Australia is a wealthy nation is because we do take care of each other. Mm. We're not just a capitalist nation like the US. Yeah. We have a great Medicare system which takes care of its own, mm. and because of that the safety nets that we have in place reduce the costs and the burden that that would normally put on society. So when you don't have a system that takes care of its own, you have more crime because of more drug dealing and people using drugs and people being shot. And if they can't get help, people dying on the streets and the spread of disease mm. and all of these different things. In the US, heroin has quadrupled. The use of you know injecting heroin has quadrupled mm. um, since the 90s. And yet ours has halved okay so when you look at this this has made us a wealthy country and uh you that's not even looking at the bleeding heart scenario which is we should respond to this because it's more compassionate it's a moral thing to do yeah you know speaking to your argument there that's right it's even if you don't give a shit about another life this would make you personally wealthier so what do you and people can read this in your book but what do you propose we do going forward well i think the first thing is is getting the right people around the table and then developing a a vision for australia um, when it comes to drugs and for me it's i want to rework the whole system right and not just approach it in a hodgepodge way but actually get the best minds that, that are in the field but also in the community together to develop a system that looks at a, a whole of, a, a whole of uh, community response right. to drugs 
that doesn't just look at, say, the systems of treatment, but the systems of why, how the black market came into existence in the first place, so understanding how a regulated market might work. And these are mind-bending questions because mm. one thing for a person like me to say, we should regulate drugs, what does that look like? Right. So this is where I'm spending most of my time now in developing these ideas of what a regulated market might actually look like. Not just the theory, but actually designing how those systems would look like. So for me, that's what I think the next step is, is getting together, again, the best minds to, to think of this future and, and paint that. One of the criticism, I, I guess, I've often heard when people have talked about uh, legalisation and regulation mm. is that it will open up the mm. floodgates. And whereas, say, a small percentage of people would use drugs or what were once illicit drugs, then you'd have 10 times as many. What would you say to that? Visit Portugal where drug use has gone down after decriminalisation. And explain the, the Portugal system just briefly well, for people who might not be aware. Portugal over 10 years ago decided to decriminalise drugs. They didn't regulate a market, they just decriminalised and they've seen a reduction in drug use. Right. And that's the simplest way of saying it. New Zealand, for a brief moment, regulated synthetic drugs in 2013 and um, it was paused not because of uh, concerns around um, people using drugs but because... The only way that they were testing these drugs was on animals. Okay. So an animal activist stopped that. Um, and so they're trying to work out how to get past that at the moment. Okay. The New Zealand health minister believes that we should regulate drugs. Uh, so it's not just countries like Portugal, it's countries like New Zealand too. And we will um, regulate uh, cannabis, I believe, in the next decade uh, because there are precedents for that in, say, Colorado Oregon right. and soon um, California. So we'll understand how to do this with other drugs as well into the future. It's where we're going anyway. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it should also be, for us right now, a matter of how. And that's something... Do you have some ideas you'd like to share on that at present or is that something you're still kind of workshopping? Still workshopping. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I think the easiest way is someone like Alex Wodak would talk about it as... Well, we, you know, cannabis is first cab off the rank because it's, again, there are precedents and we can see countries um, like the US um, who have stepped in to regulate that and there'll be lessons to learn over the next few years around um, uh, what we should and shouldn't do. Right. But that's about as far as we're getting. Uh, in terms of dreaming this up, I think, you know, again, we have to come back to the evidence and I think we need to be spending more money on the research around this. And just to jump back a bit, the war on drugs itself, we've invested billions, military hardware, military technology, um, countless lives, both in terms of law enforcement and the victims uh, of, of this tough on drugs approach. What's your thought of that? I guess, you know, overall, and, and would you agree with me when my often response to that is drugs can seriously harm people, but what seems to harm people even more is the war on them. Mm. Would you agree with that? And, and totally. What are your thoughts on that? Totally. Um, and we know that the beginnings of the war on drugs was really uh, politically motivated. Just last night I watched um, All the President's Men about Watergate and Nixon. Right. And we know that um, Nixon's strategist developed and coined the term the war on drugs but also the, the political strategy around it based on um, the understanding that the people that they were never going to uh, convert uh, to help them win the election was young people right. and African-Americans. 
and it was young people and African Americans who were using um, the the drugs um, that uh, they uh, illicit drugs. So uh, this is where the term war on drugs came from. It was really a better term for it could have just been war on young people and marginalised communities. Mm. And in turn, I guess we have only fueled the problems and that marginalisation that has led to that drug use to begin with. That's right. And I think, you know, you don't have to listen to a person like me to say the war on drugs has failed. Listen to a person like Kofi Annan who says that uh, the war on drugs uh, and, and, and our laws um, hurt people more than the drugs do. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I was actually just reading a tweet you sent out the other night and I, and I can't remember the exact... Um, I'm hungry. No, no, no. That's <laughs> that's similar to my tweets. Yeah. Uh, yours was much more profound, but it was actually um, support for the police as well. Yeah. Because one thing I think is often lost in this debate is, you know, we all have a go at the police mm. as you know the, the the big bad men in this war on drugs. But often they're just following out uh, yeah. acts of legislation. Yeah, right. And yeah. I think what it would be like to be a young police officer today. You sign up because you know chances are most of you anyway will have noble ideas, wanting to make the community safer. And instead of, say, go out and, you know, preventing uh, sexual crimes or crimes of violence, mm-hmm. most of your time can be spent up, uh, you know, chasing up petty drug users, sending them into the prison system where things generally only get worse and you're back out again and a huge amount of resources and, and often just your morale that, yeah. that's committed to, uh, you know, putting people in and out of this endless cycle of, um, uh, you know, prison. It seems to be huge. And, and what I've noticed recently too is a lot of law enforcement themselves are coming out and I believe there's a coalition in the United States, I think it's law enforcement against prohibition or something of that nature, who are calling for a change too. Yeah. So, Leap. Yeah, Leap, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Law enforcement against prohibition, yeah. Um, yeah, we shouldn't forget about the police. They're, they're, I mean, I work with people like Mick Palmer, who was the Federal Police Commissioner, and before that he was the Northern Territory Police right. Commissioner. Before that he was working on the streets of the, you know, of the NT. Mm. Someone like him believes that Prohibition has completely failed. So when we, when we say, you know, police are evil uh, and, and make a, a statement like that, we're actually fundamentally ignoring the fact that police are actually part of the solution as well. You can say some police, you know, get in the way of, of, of change, but even that's not going to really help. Like I was saying before, there are conservative politicians who really want to see change too. Right. And I don't think this is a part on... on this isn't a huge mistake uh, of people. I have, I'm sure, uh, many times have just said politicians, blah, 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 whilst I said before conservative politicians are actually some are for this uh, idea as well. But I, I guess my point is to show people that there are decent uh, politicians out there, there are decent police who want change, um, and there are people uh, on the left who are as ideological as people on the far right, and I think your Clint Eastwood quote is spot on. This is my issue with uh, a person who says that we should just legalise all drugs and, and, and not worry about the controls around it because everyone has a right to use drugs. Well, I think that's uh, akin to uh, the idea that uh, a government that uh, doesn't govern is the best government of all. It's a very mm. Republican, far-right-wing kind of thing to it's say. It's an extremist ideology, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And like you said, it's got a lot... That, that far-left idea has got a lot more to do with the far-right idea. And again, it comes back to this notion. I think it was my wife's quote, Naomi... Knops, if it wasn't her, uh, she's uh, quoted from someone else, and I think it's a great one, that fundamentalists 
uh, have far more in common than those uh, who um, are moderating their belief mm-hmm. and that we we really need to just stop, pause and reflect. Or as Mark Twain said, uh, when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great quote by your wife. Uh, if it is her, I'm, I, I, I'd like to attribute it to her. Let's. Yeah. Well, we should find it. Maybe you and I should go and do some research and find out. I could ask her as well. Yeah, well, yeah. and uh, yeah, She's I, not on Twitter. No. No, she, she's... Will uh, it get her or do you think she's really well and truly... No, I, I, think she's, um, I think she, uh, uh, she thinks it's a bit silly. I know when I tweet something, she's she's not interested in that. <laughs> I, I walk around the house. I just talk in tweets. Right, yeah. So I just walk around the house and I'll say stuff like, um, not all police are evil. And she'll kind of just look at me and uh, and I, I'm waiting for her to walk over to me and like press a button and say favourite or something favorite. like that. <laughs> but if, if that was the case, I never get any favourites or retweets from her. <laughs> What was my next thing I was going to ask? Sorry, you? I threw you. No, that's okay. I was just thinking what my wife would say. A quote from her: "You're an idiot." <laughs> Retweet. Retweet. Yeah. You're yeah, an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just touching on ice again, and and you know, I really appreciate what you were saying in terms of approach and the issues we're discussing are far more than just confined to the ice itself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, by by bringing it back to ice over and over again, we're, we're probably not being that helpful. But having said that, I'm wondering if there's anything unique about ice that uh, you've found um, difficult in terms of uh, engaging appropriate treatment for young people or other issues when dealing with it. I guess one of the larger things that I've heard brought up about why ice may be take, being taken on in such a, a large way at the moment is because it is a, a drug that seems to complement in some ways our culture of wanting to get a lot of stuff done, wanting to perform, uh, wanting to uh, have endless kind of amounts of energy. Is that something you can talk on at all? I don't think it's the that latter idea of... Um, I've heard a few people say this in the last month that, mm. you know, we, we, we're currently obsessed with ice because of our culture at the moment. I, I, I'm not a subscriber to that the mm. more I think about it. I think the reason why we use ice is it's there and it's cheap right um you know when it's the same price as the same amount for you know cocaine and yet for cocaine lasts half an hour and ice so yeah. point can last you three days so literally more bang for your buck more bang for your buck yep. i think it's got more to do with that than any kind of uh metaphysical reason around um you know uh, similarity with our culture mm. and i think that our concerns around ice and violence um, are not unfounded but I think they are definitely amplified and uh, when we see it in, in, in the in the media so does all ice uh, use uh, turn people into um, psychotic zombies no mm. um, is ice okay to use uh, I, I wouldn't say so and I don't think that's a good message to, mm. to put out there do most people who use ice in the country have an issue with it? No. Mm. The Australian Crime Commission said that most people who use ice use it infrequently, perhaps mm. only once a year. So they're certainly not um, presenting with psychotic episodes. Well, how many people do present with psychotic episodes, right. clinically significant ones? Uh, according to one NDARC study, less than a quarter. Right. Um, and then of those, those who uh, have continuing symptoms have found uh, to have pre-existing schizophrenia. Um, so what are we looking at? Mm. Uh, how do we unpack that? How do we make sense of it? It's certainly an issue, but let's get this into perspective. Mm. 
Um, there are pros and cons with all drugs. Sure. I'm also not 100% sure that um, dealing with drugs in different classes is the way to go. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to argue that uh, cannabis is worse than a drug like ice. Mm. I guess what I'm saying is, is, you know, I could argue, I did have an argument with someone the other week when they said, oh, you, you, you argue that ice use is, is, uh, hasn't gone up. Well, I say that it has because of this, 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 and this. And I say, well, what's your evidence? And they said, not much. And I realized after 15 minutes, we were arguing about semantics. Right. Who cares if it's gone up or down? What we can agree on is we need to do something about it. Right, and what will work. Yeah. Mm. So I guess when I think about the argument of what drugs are worse than the other, I think, again, it's one of these silly arguments we can get caught up in. And we need to be thinking of a strategy to deal with all substances that are currently illicit. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and one analogy I heard was, you know, if you find your tyre of your car blown out on the freeway, you don't spend the next uh, hour walking back the freeway trying to say, was it this, was it that? What, you just go, right, there's a problem at the moment. What can we do to fix this tyre and get on with the road? But that's probably a great point to leave it at. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, mate. See ya. So we find ourselves at the end of today's episode. Before you go... I'd like to once again invite you to head on over to our website at transgression.com.au. And while you're there, click on the contact tab. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for tuning in. We can't wait to have you join us again for the next episode.